This is Know It All, the ABCs of Education, a platform of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC, where we empower our listeners with insightful information about equity in education. Welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education. Listen in every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern or at any time from your computer at blogtalkradio.com forward slash knowitall. I am your host, Allison R. Brown of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC. I'm a civil rights attorney with a focus on equity in public education. Keep up with me on my website at allisonbrownconsulting.com and be sure to follow Know It All at blogtalkradio.com. If you're tweeting, follow me at Allison R. Brown and tweet about the show with the hashtag KnowItAllABC. On today's show, we're talking about the crisis facing boys in school. 60% of entering first-year college students are girls. Girls outperform boys in English and reading and are about even in science and math these days. Boys are more likely to be suspended and expelled from school. My guest today is Dr. Warren Farrell, the author of several books, including The Myth of Male Power and Why Men Earn More. He has been chosen by the Financial Times as one of the world's top 100 thought leaders and by the Center for World Spirituality as one of the world's spiritual leaders. Dr. Farrell is also the chair of the Commission to Create a White House Council on Boys and Men. Welcome to the show, Dr. Farrell. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm looking forward to it. So, Dr. Farrell, tell us, is there... Is there a crisis facing boys? There's a serious crisis facing boys, and it's throughout the entire industrialized world. And basically, as as industrialized nations had the um, economic freedom from survival being their total focus, they allowed for divorce. And as the divorces occurred, there was... um, there was usually a greater likelihood of being a, a family that was focused on um, the, the the mother was usually the primary parent, and so in in those families there was a particularly challenging experience that both boys and girls had. Um, but the difference with the boy and girl experience that when they when then when they were not being raised um, with a significant amount of father input. Um, was that the boy tended to not feel like there was any, you know, a, a future for him as a father and, and role for him, and so so and then another impact of industrialization has been that the um, the the old role of men being a sole breadwinner or men being a warrior um, disappeared. That is, is, boys are still have the possibility of being a warrior today or going into the military, but it's not the, the, the number of people, boys that are consumed by and, um, and well, by war or killed, killed in war and the amount of the percentage of boys that become heroes by being involved in war is much less. So there's a loss of a sense of purpose among many um, boys. Boys know that you know being a, being a breadwinner is not the only a male experience. It doesn't define masculinity like it used to. So that's that's one thing that's happening. Another thing that's happening is jobs. That um, a lot of the the jobs that in the in the old days when a boy was not academically um, 
inspired he could he could be a mechanic or a construction worker or a factory worker or work as a farmer particularly as a farmer and in the fields and so if he if he couldn't use his if it, if mental wasn't his area muscle could become his area but muscle is becoming replaced increasingly by robotics and by um by microchip and mental processes and uh, so the uh, and women tend to be more dominant in the service industries in the health industries and so boys are losing a lot of opportunities there and the, and the schools have not been making the adjustments vocational training has been disappearing um, rather than increasing and it needs to be increasing um, fathers need to be increasingly involved and they're in, they're decreasingly involved last uh, 2010 uh, 53% of women under 30, 30 or under, who had children, uh, 53% of them had children without being married, which usually means a, f- a fair amount of minimal involvement of the father. And so all these things are leading to, uh, re- another is in these schools is recess has been cut back, even as we've been finding that boys are four times as likely to have ADHD, and yet... Um, and that one of the ways to inhibit ADHD or prevent it from getting significant is by a lot of physical exercise. And so, um, and schools that have a lot of physical exercise have fewer problems with that than schools that don't. And yet, physical, physical recess and um, and physical education have been being cut back in schools rather than increased in schools as they as they need to be. So. There's there's a lot in there um, that that seems to explain how this the crisis facing boys has come to be. You spoke about vocational education and vocational education decreasing. If industry is changing, what does vocational education? How can vocational education adapt to change with industry? It has to adapt to be very much more focused on IT, on computers, on teaching kids to um, to program, on robotics, and so you know, I just the last day or two, you know, um, Amazon announced that they were creating drones for, uh, you know, to to be to be carrying packages, and that 85% of its um, packages were able to be five pounds or less and therefore be able to be carried by a drone. And so that means there'll be fewer, you know, boys and young men going out and delivering packages, but what there'll be more people doing is creating drones. And But in order to do that, you have to have a technical education to know how to create a drone, how to repair a drone, how to program a drone, how to make it redundant. Uh, you'll you'll need to know more about um, every form of robotics um, and 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 how to you know and how to create it, how to sell it, how to um, you know answer technical questions about it, and um, how to program it and so on. And the, these are the types of things that you know vocational education in schools should be very uh, very major today um, uh, on those areas. The, the security industry is expanding. Um, boys need to know you know not just about how to physically be a bodyguard and be strong enough. Um, but all the you know the technical things that are happening in the you know in the security industry.
industry that um, that allow them to be able to get a job in that security industry, and the same with healthcare and medical devices and and um, blue, you know, reading blueprints. Um, and everything is becoming more technical, but many, but not technical academic. Um, so you know, a boy who is not good at Shakespeare. Um, or reading or you know writing is not you know something that he's fascinated with in terms of literature he needs to know that but he but he but boys are much more likely to respond when they know they have a goal when they know they can make a, a contribution so having um, so even though he may not be good in literature or whatever he is he is much more likely to be responsive to feeling that if he takes X, Y, and Z courses, he can get to a certain level of competence on and, and being a radiologist or being uh, some type of IT person, and that inspires him to be able to feel like he has a role in the world, that he's useful, and that he has a, you know, that he has a purpose. Mm-hmm. In your book, The Myth of Male Power, Why Men Are the Disposable Sex, you write about the disposability of boys and then, will you explain a bit more about that? I will, and also tie it into the questions you've been asking. Um, in the myth of male power, what I say is that every society that has survived has survived based on its ability to be able to um, influence its sons to be disposable, disposable as warriors in war, disposable in um, in coal mines, um, being uh, oil rig operators, uh, construction workers, welders, uh, working on bridges or tall buildings. And, um, and so all the hazardous jobs to this day are about 98% on average um, male jobs. So, um, and the ones that are sort of hazardous and dirty, like garbage collecting, are almost usually 100% males. And so the, the, um, the more hazardous and the more uh, dirty and dangerous the job is, uh, the more likely a male is to be in, in, in that job. And so that was a form of disposability. So the big issue here is this, is that if every society has, uh, that survived, survived based on training its sons to be disposable, then we all have an unconscious investment in not caring too much about our sons living. And yet that is in conflict with what parents want. Parents want their sons to live and be healthy, and at the same time they want their sons to be hero and admire, heroes and admired and respected. And you, see the, you see the tension there in things like football. So you know, a parent will say, yes, of course I want my son to be healthy, but they might send their son out to a, at age eight or nine to get involved in a football league um, and, the, um, and, and risk concussions and spinal cord injuries and so on and have this mixed feeling of internal conflict about, on the one hand, you want your son to have scored the touchdown. And on the other hand, he's far more likely, the more invested he is in that, to take risks um, for fear that he will lose his opportunity to get the tackle um, or get that touchdown, and so the um, so that so this is this is the conflict. But as as boys as we become as fewer and fewer boys are sent to war, and fewer and fewer boys percentage wise are risking their lives in jobs, which are which are overall getting slightly safer. Um, we we have um, we have many boys losing their sense of purpose. And so the good news is 
their sense of purpose is not based on dying. The bad news is that they're not having a sense of purpose like they used to have. And so our job for the future is to is to help boys have a sense of purpose that is not disposability dependent, that's not de- dependent upon saying, I feel like I'm a man because I'm going to be a sergeant or a lieutenant in the um, you know, in the Air Force or the Army or whatever. And so, um, or conversely, that um, I'm the um, sole breadwinner, so I have to go out and make all the money. Um, maybe my sense of purpose is in being a father and being a really good father. Maybe my sense of purpose is in um, having a balance between my work life and my home life and, and making sure I'm contributing as a both a father and a, and a person in, in the home with my, with my future wife. But these are these are shifts in the consciousness of, you know, girls tend to still fall in love with boys who um, are powerful or um, who are, are famous or have good um, incomes, um, and so we haven't retrained our daughters or resocialized our daughters or even discussed in the school system the possibility of of, of, of girls choosing boys based on their warmth or their listening skills or their facilitative skills um, or their ability to be a future father. Those are not discussions that are happening yet that I believe should be happening in the future. You know, I speak a lot about equity um, and, and equity as opposed to equality. So equity that that is really based on a true assessment of need before administering a remedy and equality that kind of administers a a blanket remedy for everyone um, equally. So I think equity is important, and I think it's important to be mindful of the differences between boys and girls. But there are certainly differences in individuals, in in individual boys. Um, And, you know, I, I think of my own children, my son who is 10 and my daughter is 7. They are different people. I see the boy in him, and I see, you know, I, we've we had conversations when he was first starting school at three years old with his teachers about how they could incorporate movement during the day so that he wouldn't, um, so that he could keep moving. You know, he's, mm-hmm. he's a very physical child, and he's always mm-hmm. been very physical. Um, at the same time, you know, he is very different than his his male classmates. So how do you how do you account for differences in individuals and still um, advocate on behalf of boys as a whole? Yes. Um, for, first of all, your points are, it's, it's important, really important to know if, you know, if there's neuroscience and neuroplasticity, and neuroscience has really made it really clear that boys and girls are different. And at the same time, neuroplasticity has made it really clear that men, boys and girls' brains can change and um, and and the size can change, the, the shape can change. We can increase our oxytocin, our dopamine, um, and 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 our, our hormone levels can be uh, can be stimulated and and um, have and has an impact on the way we behave. Um, you increase oxytocin, you decrease autism, you um, you 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 increase um, exercise, you decrease ADHD. You change your diet, you decrease ADHD. So, the so the for me, equality is about recognizing that there's multiple dimensions of equality. That you 
that there has to be the equality of opportunity that's provided by the law, the 14th Amendment type of equality. Um, and then, then there has to be the equality that's, that's provided by parental messages um, saying to our, you know, to our neighbor, gee, you know, you need a babysitter? Oh, it's not just my, seven, my 14-year-old daughter that can babysit. It's also my 14-year-old son. And getting, and you know, or you want somebody to 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 be an engineer, to use, talk to a guidance counselor, saying make sure you're also making that suggestion with as much enthusiasm to the daughter, the, the girls in our school, as to the boys in our school. So it's the social messages, it's the parental messages, it's the school messages, and it's the and and it's the laws that must provide equality of opportunity. But once those equality of opportunities and messages are created, then different then, then it's also important to value that some you know some I, I had a woman in one of my workshops who didn't know her dad, but she always had this enormous attra- attraction to um, garbage dumps, and she had no idea why she was so attracted. Um, but her um, and at the, her 18th birthday, she said to her mother, "I need to the one wish and only wish that I have is to see my father that I've never seen." And so her mother granted that wish. She had always put down the father and thought the father was a terrible person. And so the but she gave her daughter that wish for her birthday. And the father and the daughter got along really well and had a wonderful connection. It seemed to be very healing for her. And so the dad volunteered to take her to the airport. On the way to the airport, he said, I think we're going to have enough time to get to the airport without any problem. You want me to take you by the place where I work? And she said, oh, sure. And so thinking she was going to go to some office, and where he worked at was a huge, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of place where there was garbage and old um, uh, cars and, and a junkyard. I meant to say junkyard is what she had an attraction to. And he took her by the junkyard that he worked at. Now, where does that come from? And you know, what mm-hmm. makes her? What made her love junkyards? I don't have the answer to that question. I do only know that that when we run things, opportunities, and expose kids to a large number of different things, that certain things resonate for them more than others. And, uh, you know, for me, um, you know, doing a lot of things, I used to design my own shirts on my speaking tours and stuff like that. Well, the average guy does not, is not interested in designing a shirt. Um, but yet, you know, I was very much a male heterosexual. <laughs> so it was, it was, you know, but that was the combination that I was. And so I had to discover, you know, and, but if I were, my, if my father had said to me, can't design your own shirt. You're a guy. You know, it would have been. Um, it would be sort of like um, very. Um, you know, that would have been inhibiting of my potential in, uh, in 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 certain areas, and I would have been making myself into a stereotype. So, you know, sort of. Mm-hmm. So knowing, acknowledging differences, but making sure your laws, and your social messages, and your school messages, don't um, push people into certain places because they're um, a certain gender or, you know, of course, a certain race as well. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit about the, the, this notion of power and how it fits into what it is that you're talking about on behalf of boys and men. How does power come into play? 
you know, power is, the way we usually think of power is people like at the White House or that have a lot of influence in government or have a lot of influence in, uh, they're, they're, they're the, you know, they're making a million dollars or more in their, a, a year in business. And we say that these people are, you know, um, or they own a lot of property. We say these people have a great deal of power. In the myth of male power, I say, stop. Let's power is it, power is about control over one's life. So, for example, when I mentioned this in a workshop I was doing, one of the women in the workshop um, very hesitantly raised her hand and said, um, uh, "Dr. Farrell, I'm sort of having some challenges with what you're saying. I mean, not because I disagree with it, but because." I feel it may be revealing, I may be having to confront something that I don't want to confront. And I said, go ahead, please. And she goes, "Um, well, I am a doctor, and I'm in my early 40s, and I think I have a decent reputation in the community, and I certainly make a significant amount of money. And she said, but when you're talking about power being control over your own life and the way you find out whether you have control over your own life is you sort of look inside of yourself and discover whether you're doing what you want to do because of whether it's approval-based or whether it's really you. She said, I start reflecting back on the fact of how I became a doctor. And she said, my dad was a doctor and my older brother was always assumed that he would become a doctor. And um, and so he uh, and my father always paid more attention to my older brother than he did to me. And I always felt like a black and white TV and he like a color TV that my father always answered my questions, but it was not with the same uh, focus and enthusiasm uh, that he did with my brother. And he said, I, she said, I always felt left out. And But one day at dinner time, my brother said, Dad, I have something I need to tell you, and I hope you really won't be too hurt or disappointed. And my brother said, Dad, I really don't want to become a doctor. I want to become a writer. And my dad, I saw this, this woman said, uh, the medical doctor woman said, I saw my father's face drop for a half a second, and then he tried to cover up his disappointment, but it was enough for me to see that he that he was really disappointed and then so I piped up to save my father from being disappointed and said well dad you know I've always meant to tell you I want to be a doctor and my dad looked at me and said my god sweetie you know why didn't you tell me before I would have been happy to sort of work with you and he said from that moment on my father you know when I came home he wanted to know the homework I was doing he helped me with it he directed me toward medical um, you know things being good at medical things and science and biology and so on and my brother began to feel like the black and white TV and Mm. she and she said I didn't feel I had the I didn't have the the guts, the courage, whatever it was, to ever tell my dad that that, that was a joke, um, because now I was, you know, getting into a, a really good college with a decent scholarship, and I was now on to medical school. And all along, it was not my choice of what I wanted to do, but I, you know, I so much needed and desired my father's approval that had been so minimally given to me from my perspective during my life, although my dad would disagree. Um, and you know. And so I all, and now you're saying what real power is is control over your life, and mm. you know. So I very gently said to the audience, you know, how many people think that Wendy um, does have power when it 
that's defined as control over your own life, and nobody in the audience raised their hand. And um, and she said, I'm afraid I can't raise my hand either. And so, and the point of all that is that that that's the way men have defined power in their life, is they they have learned to climb a ladder up a wall um, that and get to the top of that ladder and call it power without ever anyone saying, wait a minute, did I put that ladder on the wall that was my choice to go up? Or am I putting mm-hmm. that ladder on a wall that was chosen by my parents or my my school or my the, my knowledge that I would be more respected by um, other people if I went up and became a doctor or a lawyer or you know or did something that other people respected around me. Mm-hmm. And so and and that's the so that's the great new opportunity for boys, and that because women the women's movement helped women ask the questions who do I want to be. And like President Obama has formed a White House Council on Women and Girls. We have a great deal of attention for women's health. We have seven federal offices of women's health. We have zero on men's health, even though boys and men die um, 5.2 years sooner than than women and girls. Um, And so we have an enormous opportunity in the near future to be able to say to our sons, uh, discover. Let me help you discover who you want to be, and then how you can make a living doing something. If it's something that normally is more fulfillment oriented rather than money oriented. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the the women's movement and feminism. And um, you know, I I grew up. My my dad worked, and my mom was home with us, and. Um, my sister and I were the oldest, and my brother was the baby. And um, you know, we we bossed him around a good deal. <laughs> and, and I certainly um, he knows about before, the middle power. <laughs> <laughs> he, he knows very well. Um, so before I had my son, I was very much of the belief that women, by any means necessary, had to do what we have to do to be independent and to be successful, however that's defined. Um, And that, you know, I don't, we have to focus first and foremost on being successful women and being strong women. Um, And then I had a son. And, you know, I could see what that, even just the rhetoric does and and just the way that we go out in the world and um you know people talk about how she's so cute my daughter she's so cute and and um are dismissive of him um or expect him to be strong and athletic and um you know just just the rhetoric that that is um there when it comes to the women's movement and women's mm-hmm. power so will you just talk about the I think the the need was there and is there certainly for um, to acknowledge that when you look at you know I'm a lawyer you look at law firm partners for instance and mm-hmm. partnerships um, and they are predominantly men. Mm-hmm. When, how does that happen? Why is it that that is the case? And how does the women's movement figure in here? Yeah, very good. The the women's movement has there's good news and bad news about the women's movement from my perspective. The good news is that it's opened opportunities for women that 
you know, my mother never even considered when she was growing up. I'm 70, so my mother would have been about you know, um, in her late 90s by now. And so when she grew up, it was, you know, she didn't even consider the possibility of doing, you know, becoming a lawyer, becoming a doctor, becoming, um, you know, sort of a top, an engineer. And so, um, so, so the good news about the women's movement is that Every woman, almost every woman, learns to think about that possibility, to discover that in herself. Many women are involved in sports, which are extremely valuable um, socialization processes. And my daughter, before she was involved, one of my stepdaughters, before she was involved in sports, um, was a spoiled, self-centered kid. And when she started getting, you know, when she started, you know, stealing second base. And somebody else said, um, you know, you were out. And she said, I'm safe and started arguing with them. She got a number of people saying, you know, what's the matter with you? You know, Why are you arguing like that? You know, you're out, <laughs> period. And so she started learning a great deal from, you know, from sports that she wouldn't have learned otherwise. And so this is all, the, you know, some of the positives that the women's movement has created. Um, but what has, what, what has, what unfortunately happened is that the women's movement um evolved in part out of the civil rights movement and the, and also in part out of um, the, the great majority of strong academic feminists around the world, all the industrialized world, built their academic feminism on a, uh, on a Marxism model. And what was common to civil rights and to Marxism was that both of them had oppressors and oppressed, and the oppressed slave owner and the oppressed slave the oppressed um, um, capitalist and the oppressed um, working class person. And they tried to put, and those were fairly accurate models um, in the civil rights mode and in the, um, in the working class mode, they were a little bit less than completely accurate. Um, but in the male-female mold, uh, rather in the male-female dynamic, it was completely inaccurate, meaning that mm -hmm. The, the, what, the, what the dominant force was was not patriarchy, but was the need to survive. And the need to survive forced both our grandmothers and our grandfathers to sacrifice their lives in the hope that their children would have a better life. Men sacrificed their lives in war and, um, you know, and, and you know, put themselves in the civil wars of the World War I and World War II. You know, 1.2 million people were killed or maimed in the Battle of the Somme alone in World War I. I mean, just enormous numbers of, of men just died as a part of their role. At the same time, enormous numbers of women died in childbirth that they were expected to do. And the reason women were expected to bear children was because bearing children led to the survival of more um, people in that kinship network, more people in that race, more people in that religion, uh, or whatever it was that, that people wanted, and, and um, more fa family members. And so both the moms and the dads risked their lives. Um, the Chinese immigrants that came over here um, were almost all, uh, built railroads in the United States were almost all males, many of whom died, um, hoping that they're um, being able to 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 bring their wives over and their children over, they were okay about dying because those males knew that their children would have an opportunity that they wouldn't have had outside of the United States. 
and so the so the women's movement didn't they uh, women's movement was very articulate and insightful about the sacrifices that our mothers and our grandmothers and our great grandmothers made, but they made those sacrifices in the world inside of the home at a point in the, in history when the man had to make the sacrifices for the world the world in the world outside of the home whether it was in war or in the workplace and the women's movement didn't see that men were making different types of sacrifices they started defining power as getting to the the partnership at a law firm or becoming the medical doctor but um mm-hmm. but they they didn't realize that power was about you know men were only allowed to have one type of power and every inch that they got in that law firm was not about power but it was about the sacrifices they made working 60 70 80 billing hours a week and therefore 90 you know 70 70 80 or 90 hours per week um to be able to bring home a paycheck that had that had partnership status attached to that and partnership monies attached to that but what did they do to get that paycheck? They sacrificed time with their family. They sacrificed. They 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 did trial law rather than um, public interest law that they really cared about. They did things that they oftentimes that were the the road to high pay was a, is a toll road, and mm-hmm. this, the feminist movement had no idea that the road to high pay was not a road of privilege but rather a toll road. And so that is the that is the blind spot of the feminist movement. And therefore it started saying it started defining people as being more powerful the more the higher up they went in politics or in business as opposed to saying, wait a minute, that's you you can't determine whether something is power or not until you ask, is this person doing something that they really want to do? And when you ask people what they really want to do the answer is usually they want more time with their family. Seventy-six percent of men say they would give up pay for more time with their family. More than forty-nine percent of men say that they would give up their job completely and spend be at home full time with their children if they wouldn't lose pay in the process. And so the the we are we haven't yet asked men what they want to do and what they want to do and what, who they want to be. That's what creates power, not whether they are feeling obligated to earn money that someone else spends while they die sooner, which is the way that men have learned to define power, falsely. And that That the way feminists have not understood that that obligation to earn money that someone else spends while they die sooner is really not power. Mm. I think that is so so fascinating. and I think about, you know, my, my own colleagues who, um, men and women, who have climbed that ladder and are looking around and um, wondering what else there is, um, you know, what else there is to it and, mm-hmm. and how they can find fulfillment. Um, can, so I want to talk about the schools and, and talk about, you know, what, how can we simultaneously make progress as men and as women, when you know, when you look at public schools and and um, you know, public school teachers, seventy six percent of them are women. Mm-hmm. Um, boys are more likely to be disciplined in school. They're less likely to enroll in college than girls. What role do the schools play in 
in getting us to a point of asking men and boys what they want to be and what they want to do? First of all, you really ask outstanding questions, and so if you're as good as an, an attorney as you are a facilitator of, of other people, you are really must have been a fantastic attorney as well. Um, oh well, thank you. It's, the uh, yes, it's really um, the schools can do a great deal. Um, one example of what schools can do is really assess the fact that in inner cities, in particular. Um, there is, if in inner cities in particular, far more likely to have a child, especially if the child is in a poor, has a poor background economically, to have uh, be to grow up in a mother, um, a mother exclusive or a mother dominated um, family. And so, if you have a boy going from a, uh, being raised for his first four or five years with a, predominantly or exclusively a mom then going into nursery school or kindergarten where there and in this entire grammar school experience there's all um, young women and women and um, then and he gets to be the age of 10 11 12 and he hasn't had a single positive continuous male role model um, you can it doesn't take much of a leap to see how how vulnerable he will be to having a destructive male role model, like a gang leader, um, so you know you want to be a guy, you want to have good rap, you know whatever, and and or if he, you know, if if he gets to be a little bit older and he sees that somebody is be, able to make him look like a hero by selling drugs and getting money and having you know special um, perks that he can give girls to you know to bribe them to go out with him, um, then um, that that's all. Those are he, he becomes vulnerable to the destructive male role models. The bigger picture here is that male energy, when it's is either the most constructive energy or the most destructive energy. Male energy produces our inventors, it produces our CEOs, um, it produces our you know, startups, um, but it also produces our serial killers and about 90% of our prisoners. And so if you, if you work effectively with male energy, you have enormous societal rewards. If you don't, you have enormous societal punishments. And so, then, so, then, so what can be done? A part of what the school system can do is to um, be able to bring a, a, um, men into the school system at a very early age. Um, and that means consciously training men. It means working through the sexual issues, our fear of men um, <coughs> touching, touching girls and women and not being para paranoid about that or touching other boys. Um, it, means, um, it, it means working out those issues so that our, our boys, when they're in kindergarten and first grade, have good positive male role models to play with and be with them. Secondly, it means father involvement. It means um, making sure that 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 is that every time a girl or woman becomes pregnant, that she needs to communicate with the man that created that pregnancy with her, and the two of them together need to work out a way of whether or not there's going to be uh, a child born, uh, whether the, when if that child is born, making sure that the the girl has um, a, an increased amount of incentive to be involved with the man, that the man doesn't have an increased amount, that the girl doesn't get, an, uh, the, now a woman, doesn't get an incentive to be um, paid more when the father is not in, in the family. 
so that we have to reverse the incentives of father involvement. We have to make sure our court systems are fair about um, not not having um, when there's a, a custody battle that our sons um, that 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 the primary assumption is that both parents will remain involved and the court will will work with that assumption rather than the assumption that if the mother says that she doesn't want the father involved that the that the that the mother knows best um, what what we now have plenty of data to show that children do best when when they have both father and mother involved father and mother living close to each other and neither mother nor father bad-mouthing the other one the next thing schools can do, back to schools again that schools can do is that they must get more um, vocational, um, uh, not just vocational training, but less, a lot more exercise and physical education. So, for example, in the Urban Dove School in Bedford-Stuyvesant, which is one of the neediest areas in the country, uh, which is part of Brooklyn in New York, um, the the first three hours of a charter school called Urban Dove each day is focused on physical education for both girls and boys. These are girls and boys that normally have been failing out of school and failing out of life. And the after the first year of operation of the Urban Dove School in a, in a population in which the expectation to go to graduate from high school and go to college would be close to zero uh, percent, um, Urban Dove had 95 percent of its graduates went on to college. And one of the main foci was not just physical education or sports during the first three hours of the day, but having the person who was the coach of that child stay with those children um, through the rest of the day. So the end of those first three hours, all of the coaches um, did not continue doing physical education. They spread out and made contact with the kids in the class and they played the role of coach when the algebra lesson was too hard or when the the boy didn't or the girl didn't do their homework. And so this is the type of um, focus on um, on on what really works with kids and especially with boys, but in this case, the Urban Dove case, both the the te- both male and female teachers worked with both male and female students um, to do a significant amount of physical education that led to the um, the children having much more um, and the coach remained involved with the children. What what almost no one understands about male male involvement and coaching involvement is that almost all fathers, when they're involved with children, they do sort of a coaching with children. They play with children. They turn everything into a game. They do roughhousing. They do chasing around um, with the children. They play horsey. And all of this seems like the father is just one more child. But in fact, the father, by doing that roughhousing and horsey and playing with the kid is building a bond with the child and then that bond is used as leverage by the father or by the coach to be able to say we just we just helped you overcome the uh, to train yourself well enough to beat the other team and so now the other team can get transferred to the the opponent now that you're is algebra the opponent is math the opponent is is um, not being able to read we can beat this team and we can beat this opponent in the same way we beat uh, we beat our opponent in in when we were doing it in sports and physical education and that's the common denominator of what urban dove does that is they keep their coaches involved with the boys and the girls throughout the 
the day, um, not just playing a role of coach isolated from their, their role throughout the day. And father involvement that's consistent not only plays with the child and builds those alliances and bonds and has fun, but then also says, okay, there will be no more roughhousing if you don't um, finish your, your, your peas. There will be no more roughhousing if you don't get ready for bed within 20 minutes. Um, and yet, yes, we'll read a story, but only if. Um, and so that's the type of boundary enforcement and that can that, – that a, that a a father can afford to exact because he's built a bond with his child by his playing, and that's the type of inf- that's the type of power a coach with a child has, male or female coach, when they when they remain involved with the child to handle the other battles in life. Mm-hmm. You know, I I hear you talking about how um, male power, male energy, is either the most constructive or the most destructive and of course immediately what comes to mind is Newtown and Columbine and um, Aurora, Colorado and some of the worst shootings that we've seen. Um, how, how do you think or how would you advise men and boys who are listening right now um, to really take control and empower themselves to um, develop a movement in parallel with their women and, and girls um, that, that is going to make sure that their, their outputs and their sense of purpose, as you put it, is more constructive than not? Yes, really good questions. Well, first, first of all, to start with the Newtown and the Aurora and so on, as we often say, you know, what is what causes things like Newtown, Sandy Hook, Aurora, um, and Columbine? And people say, well, maybe it's guns, and maybe it's, uh, others say it's mental health, others say it's, um, you know, it's um, one thing or the other, but um, the, uh, but girls and boys live in the same homes with the same number of guns, with the same challenges by their mothers and fathers from a mental health um, image. And while guns, eliminating guns would probably eliminate a very significant number of, of the Auroras and the Sandy Hooks, and that's a really good way to go, we have to realize there's something that's even a greater common denominator to, um, to, to the, um, the, the violence in the schools that we've seen, and that is that, you know, um, 83 out of the last 84 uh, mass killings have been by, but mass killings is defined as four or more people killed at the same time, have been conducted by boys and or men. And so something, and we know that when somebody does something like a mass killing, that this is not a sign of mental health. <laughs> it's a sign of the, the worst form of, of mental derangement. And mm-hmm. so if, if our girls were going off the deep end, um, if they were committing suicide, which every, every, every killing that these boys do, the mass killings, they're all also suicides. Um, uh, they, every boy knows that for, when they do this, that that's the end of their life for all practical purposes. And so, the, um, and so it's a suicide as well as a mass homicide. And so if we, we, and when boys learn um, to be, so, so what we need is a major movement 
ideally feminists would align themselves with this movement because feminists, if they really care about equality, would say, I care about my sons as well as my daughters. And I, and, and, it, and yes, it is a really true sign that when, when, when destructive energy is going out there and it hurts all of us, but also if, you know, when boys and girls are at the age of nine, they commit suicide equally. But as boys learn the male role and have male hormones, at the age of 10 to 14, they commit suicide twice as often as girls. At the age of 15 and to 19, they commit suicide uh, four times as often as girls. And at the age of 20 to 24, they communicate, uh, c- commit suicide between four, uh, five and six times as frequently as girls do. And so if that was reversed, if, if girls were committing suicide increasingly to the degree that they learned the female role, feminists would be on top of that in a second and say this, is just, this just proves how dangerous, how powerless, how um, overpowering the female role is. We put, need to put more resources into that. And yet when, it, when boy, this is happening to boys, 99% of the population doesn't even know it. 99% of the population doesn't know that when people are 85 or older, that the the 85 or older males are 1,750% more likely to commit suicide than their female counterparts. And so so we need to be out there explaining this and educating this. When I chaired this commission to create a a White House Council on Boys and Men, I received a lot of very good response from the White House. But somewhere around the Valerie Jarrett, Tina Chen, uh, Office of Public Engagement level, it stopped. And it never, and it would, nobody allowed it to get into the president uh, to speak to Obama, even though the, the Boy Scouts were scheduled with an Oval Office meeting to speak to President Obama about the White House Council on Boys and Men. And at the last minute, within five minutes of the meeting, everything on the agenda was approved except the proposal to create the White House Council on Boys and Men. And so when, so when we have that type of fear of looking at our son's issues as well as our daughter's, we are, not, we are stating that we don't really care about the family. We're stating that we care about an, an old, a, a, a mal-designed description of gender politics that was based on a belief that men had the power and women didn't, as opposed to that, uh, the, the belief that I've uh, tried to articulate in this last hour. Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, we have run out of time. What an interesting conversation. Dr. Warren Farrell is the author of The Myth of Male Power and Why Men Earn More, among other books. He is one of the world's top 100 thought leaders, according to the Financial Times, and he is also the chair of the Commission to Create a White House Council on Boys and Men. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Farrell. It has really been a pleasure to speak with you. You you ask extremely good questions, excellent segues, and you listen really well. I really appreciate the entire interview. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. It's been it's been my pleasure. Audience, you are now officially certified know-it-alls about the boy crisis and the myth of male power. (laughs) Remember to follow Know-It-All, the ABCs of Education on Blog Talk Radio. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter. Find ABC on Facebook and read my blog at allisonbrownconsulting.com. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week.